people will do anything, no matter how absurd, in order to avoid facing their own souls. People will do anything, no matter how absurd, in order to avoid facing their own souls. They will practice Indian yoga and all of its exercises, observe a strict regimen of diet, learn theosophy by heart, or mechanically repeat mystic texts from the literature of the whole world. All because they cannot get on with themselves and have not the slightest faith that anything useful could ever come out of their souls. Thus the soul has gradually been turned into a Nazareth from which nothing good can come. This is a little riff by Carl Jung on the soul and he doesn't of course define what he means by soul here other than to say uh, most people avoid it and maybe there's something about contemporary spirituality modern spirituality that has cast it out that treats it like Nazareth that's a he's referring to something in the New Testament can anything good come out of Nazareth is said of of Jesus and that's the way we treat the realm or the terrain or the possibility of soul and actually we're willing to follow all kinds of spiritualities we'll even mine the world's great spiritualities for anything even some paper thin version that will tell us who we are or what to do or how to be and and it takes I think a tremendous amount of courage to descend which I think is the right word into the realm of soul and and that's in part what I want to try to talk about today and this isn't the first time I've talked about soul I, I have two podcasts on it part one and part two and I guess this this will be part three but I want to talk about soul in a particular way today I want to talk about it as as relationship so soul as relationship or as a way of being in relationship and by way of just offering um, a tentative definition and and I happen to think talking about the soul just like talking about spirit or God or mystery is needed and necessary I think sometimes we like to imagine that I don't know in the contemporary world we're sort of beyond these things and can't we just talk about science for God's sake and brain chemistry and synapses and neural networks and isn't that what makes us us and God aren't, aren't we sick of talking about God and religion and um, let's get on with the task well the task of what and I don't know making money worshiping the almighty economy so in some ways, I'm kind of old-fashioned. I, I want to talk about soul. I want to talk about spirit. And, and um, anyway, that's where I'm going with, with today's podcast. And, and thanks for your patience. I have took about a month off for about 75 reasons. <laughs> I've had a, an insane summer. My oldest daughter got married on the northern coast of Ireland where my family is from. I took my youngest, my middle son to college. Uh, I went to the Tetons with Animus Valley Institute for another program, a spot I love, absolutely love the Tetons. And uh, we're in the process of selling our house here in Michigan and packing up and moving to Georgia, which is well in the works. And uh, so I've had a few things going on and, and I actually made a podcast and I listened to it and I thought, nah, not quite. Every once in a while, people ask me for podcast advice and I think, yeah, yeah I'm probably the wrong person to ask. But something I've found is I'll make something and I'll listen to it. Almost always I'll listen to it at least one time through. And 
all I'm really asking is something like, is that true? Is what I'm saying true enough? Or is it not? And, and if, it, if it doesn't sound, quite sound right to me or, or sound true or I got a little derailed, then I'll just delete it and start over. And so that's what happened. Uh, I was in one of those kind of places. So I haven't made anything in a while. So thanks for your patience and thanks for my Patreon supporters who support me anyway, no matter how frequent this or infrequent this podcast comes out. It, it means a lot. And um, I want to, uh, before I sort of dive deeper into this question of soul or soul as a relationship, uh, I want to let you know about two Israel trips that I have coming up and in the, in the spring. February 29 through March 9 is one trip, and the other is April 1 through 10. So I'm trying to get both of these off the ground, and I'm just at the beginning months of um, of generating some interest, and people are are starting to sign up, and I'd love to see both of these go. And um, if that's something that's been on your mind for a while, and you have the capacity to to do something like that, highly encourage it. These trips continue to be important to me, and and really shape me. They're, and they're not the same each time. Um, it's a kind of living conversation is why I call them. They're not tours. They're more of a pilgrimage in, in the ancient sense. And so, yeah, uh, that's happening. And you can send me an email, dobsonpilgrimage at gmail.com is my email address for, for trips and programs. So dobsonpilgrimage at gmail.com. Feel free. You can also look it up on, on my website, kentdobson.com. And um, but anyway, I'm happy to send you all the information and answer any questions and would love to to see you over there sometime so that's happening um the rest of things that i'm i'm cooking up i are kind of um emerging slowly just because of the move and i don't know it's i i gotta get settled um in a new place before i can really get a sense for oh what what's my life gonna look like and what's possible and but anyway you can always check the website for future uh, programs and offerings and things like that I'm also an animus guide now and which I'm really grateful for I've been in in what's called SAPE soul apprenticeship and initiation program for six years six or seven years and I'm coming to the end of that and um, I'm officially a guide so you'll you'll eventually down the road probably next year for sure the year after you'll start to see a few programs in which i'll be a a co-guide on on you know a few animus programs which i'll be co-guiding almost all animus programs have two guides which makes them unique and i think uh, that kind of dynamic is an is an important um way of approaching uh, soul work and wholeness work and sort of group work in general so you can look for that stuff on the Animus website. Um, maybe that's, that feels like it's probably enough to return here to the question at hand. Soul as relationship. And um, I kind of want to start in a, a somewhat unusual and personal place. I want to tell you about something that happened to me five years ago. And I've never really told this story, at least not publicly, and until recently. Not because it's so precious or, or special, just because I've found over time that even what I might call hints and guesses, clues about about the world or about the shape of the soul or about the mystery of God are very subtle, really. And, and if we talk about them too quickly or try to like claim them or, I don't know, get a tattoo that, <laughs> um, you know, tries to, to pin that experience down, then it, it, then it almost evaporates and I often have to remind myself if I've had a little taste, like 
just one taste even, that to give it time, to let it work, to let it have its way. And that's partly how I feel about this experience, because this is certainly one of the more unique and surprising sort of things that happened to me. And, um, and I think enough time has passed where I can speak about it. And I talked about this story at C3 last week, which is why it's on my mind. And I was, I've been doing a series there called We Have Questions. And, and I was just turning the attention to the question of, um, do we really need the word soul anymore? And so in some ways I'm, um, you know, this podcast and that, and that talk at C3 are, are, um, are similar and they're kind of, I'm sort of turning over the same soil here. And, and by the way, um, just as maybe one more ad, I, I will be leaving C3 and at the end of October and it's been such a gift in my life, like such a surprising and amazing gift to be a part of this spiritual community in Grand Haven, Michigan. And, um, and I'm, I'm going to miss it. I'm going to miss the people. That's the primary thing. It's, it's a lot different than working at a megachurch because megachurch is like this, it's like a phenomenon really. And, but when I look out on a Sunday morning, I know pretty much everyone's name and a little bit of their story. And that's been totally different. And, kind of awesome and anyway I'm, I'll be stepping away from that and, and I just want to say if you're you know if you're ever in this part of the world to check out C3 they have I think it's a very interesting social experiment in a kind of non-church church gathering and and anyway it's it's worth checking out so check it out sometime also you might I mean they will be hiring they will be hiring um for my, my role there. And what, how do I, how would I describe it? One way I would describe it is kind of like content creator. I get the privilege really of cooking up content and it's not just me. I do it in dialogue with a, with a couple of groups of people really. And, um, and to help host a kind of conversation around our values, but also just around, uh, what's what's meaningful right now and um how do we turn how do we turn attention to a meaningful life and so anyway that if that's something that um interests you you'll have to check out their website but they'll be looking for a new person there pretty pretty soon so all right kind of got a little little sidetracked other than to say what i'm talking about today i, I was beginning to talk about at c3 and i, I shared a bit of a bit of this story so, um, uh, let me give a quick caveat. Here's a line from, I guess, my own book, Bitten by a Camel. <laughs> now, now I'm quoting myself. Um, but I tried to make a claim, because I think it's true, first of all, that our spiritual life is, is our actual life. And... Maybe another way of saying it is the kind of the way we live, that is our living spirituality. And, and you can either turn attention to the ordinary um, and, and deepen, your, deepen the conversation with meaning, direction, values in kind of the, in your ordinary existence, or you can ignore it, you know, or you can separate spirituality out into a kind of a special realm like oh that's when i pray or go on special retreats or meditate and that's my spirituality and the rest of my life is just my life and i think the great traditions are trying to to bring um those worlds together like thomas merton says um <laughs> what i wear is pants and how i pray is breathe and he's, he's pointing to something that sometimes we need like um, retreats, programs, books, gurus, until we don't. And um, until we're pulled more deeper into our life as it is. And I might add at this point, a way of relating to our own life. That's what I think about as, as soul, at least one way of putting it.
So, um, okay, back to the story. So a few years ago, I was in Bears Ears National Monument. Just, who knows, 30 miles from any kind of main road on an animus program. And, and this was a, a nine or 10 day immersion into a very wild place, a place where mountain lion and black bear are free and a place where you can still drink water straight from the earth and a place, a canyon that has um, where human beings are new visitors, really. Maybe that's true of the entire earth. Well, it is true now that I say it. Um, you can still find unexcavated and untouched Pueblo ruins. But the canyon itself, you know, millions of years old and was standing in its magnificence before any human being, European or indigenous, ever set foot on this continent. So I was in that kind of place. And it's amazing that there are still such wild places left on earth. And hopefully that will be true for our great, great grandchildren if we... Um, upend the value system of our of our present of our uh, our present way of modern life um which has tried to strip strip the world of all things sacred and that's no way to live and um so i was um i was in the canyon and um i was a participant i wasn't guiding or anything like that i was a participant and um at least what happens to me over time, usually on day two or three, is that I finally start to accept the fact that um, I'm not the captain of my fate or the master of my soul. And, and I'm not in charge of my own life. And, and really, if I'm more simple, I start to accept the fact, oh, I guess I'm in this canyon. My cell phone doesn't work. And there's no way for me to check out. I mean, there are multiple subtle ways of checking out, but I just mean like ordinary distractions aren't present. And it's like you start to see the place where you actually are. There's like a shift from being a visitor or really maybe a, an alien or a stranger. Maybe the shift is from being a stranger to a visitor. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so something like that was happening to me and I used to think about when you're in um, wild places for long periods of time that you're you're in an altered state of consciousness. I, you know, stole this line from who knows, maybe I even got it from Bill Plotkin, or not that he's the only one that uses that phrase, but just like spiritual people talk about altered states of consciousness, and and I thought, oh yeah, that's what the natural world does. It it alters our state of consciousness, and I don't know if I think about it quite the same way anymore. Sometimes I think consciousness is like a, an aperture in a camera. And most of the time, the aperture is very small, tiny. It just lets in like just the tiniest bit of light. And that's our ego awareness. And, and, and you could even say um, certain substances just move the aperture somewhere else. Like, um, well, I don't know, like drugs, for example. And it's not that it's, it changes consciousness all that much. It just shifts it over, like almost like the way a spotlight would move from one part of the stage to another part of the stage. But mostly the aperture is pretty small. But what happens, in, in, my, in my view, this is purely Kent Dobson's imagination here, is that uh, when we're in the wild world for long enough, without the the tyrannical pressure of modern life, which is hell-bent on keeping our own aperture as small as possible, is that that aperture widens. And actually, consciousness itself widens. And the, 
the question for me is not like, well, how can I get in an altered state, but much more like how can the aperture of my consciousness widen to include more and more? That's what it feels like to me. It's like, oh, it's like more light is being let in. It's like I'm softening to the place and and my consciousness, my awareness is not so myopic. It's not so me, me, me oriented. And, and I might even say, if I had to guess, that our most natural state of consciousness, maybe the one we're born to inhabit in a way, and is a kind of wider, wide open aperture where we're able to take in multiple perspectives at the same time rather than just the ego or, or the point of view of our sub-personalities and complexes and hang-ups and coping strategies or rely on a substance to, to, to force our consciousness into another small version, you know, another um, closure of the aperture as addictions tend to do. So I was in that kind of place. I was just softening to the world. And um, my dreams were becoming more active. And there's kind of a blurring of the lines between the dream world and the waking world. And um, on this particular, on this particular um, program, we, we were invited into a fast. And we knew it was coming. It wasn't a surprise. And and part of uh, what what we do at Animus is um, there are a couple different kinds of fasts. Uh, the one I'm describing now, I think, was like a 36-hour fast. And Animus has much longer ones that are more like four days. And so this, in some ways, was a briefer uh, fast. But we were invited to find a solo spot. And... And... Uh, just... Um, just finding a solo spot has its own effect on the aperture of consciousness. It's like, uh, I'm the kind of person that looks for things to climb, you know, if I'm in a, in a, in the mountains or looks for challenges in a way, like I think if I see a sign and the trail is 10 miles, I think, I wonder if I could run the whole thing. Um, you know, it's, it's, I don't know, maybe it's just part of, part of my own natural orientation. And the great thing about a solo spot is that it says nowhere to go. You're consenting to this place. It's not a matter of climbing over the next, maybe it's even more beautiful around the next bend. You just sort of, um, the invitation is to surrender. And, and same with fasting. It's like emptying, self-emptying, like the New Testament says of, of Christ, he emptied himself. That's uh, kenosis in Greek. And it's like you pour yourself out onto the earth and, and you just are there. You just lay there <laughs> um, and, and allow the, the place to affect you. And um, So on, I don't remember what day it was, but maybe the day before we had to find a solo spot, I came around a corner and I saw in the distance a kind of rock plateau. And very clearly to me, this rock plateau was in the shape of a massive buffalo. The head and the shoulders, the entire body, the butt, the legs, the whole being was, and it was absolutely massive, like the size of a football field. And I didn't know it was there, obviously, and it just like, it's like pinned me to the earth for a moment. And immediately I had this sense of, I'm going to fast and sit at the mouth of this rock being. I didn't even have to try. I didn't have to wonder, where am I going to have my fast? It just, um, it claimed me in a way, and I felt allured and drawn and and by the way this rock outcropping it like wasn't one of those um you know like when you lay down on the 
on the lawn and you look at cloud shapes and you're like, oh, there's a dragon. And your, your friend is like, oh, no, that's a unicorn. And it wasn't that kind of thing. Anybody, anybody standing there from a three-year-old to an 85-year-old would look at that same plateau rock being and say, yeah, that's a buffalo. So um, about a day later, I was in fact in a little sandstone wash at the mouth of this being. I was so close to it that I could barely recognize it as such. And a fast is um, it's not always what people imagine, like, I'm going to fast and I'm going to have like a mystical experience or um, I'm just not going to have any, any distractions and I'm just going to be one with the, with the world and the universe and, and it's all going to be um, union and connection and, 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 and more than that, it's going to tell me what I should do with my life and, and everything around me is going to be like an oracle and is going to say, you know, become a lawyer or get married or, um, you know, it's going to communicate with me. You know, people have all kinds of uh, uh, sort of conscious and unconscious assumptions about this kind of spiritual practice. But for me, at least, it's an exercise in being worn down. And you can spend an enormous amount of time on a fast in a solo spot all alone in some of the wildest places on earth and be busy thinking about other things. I've spent uh, embarrassingly long periods of time working on my resume, you know, just in my head and without realizing it. And that's not even something that I like am even concerned about. How did I get hung up on that? You know, <laughs> um, or thinking about emails that you never sent. Well, for me, that I never sent. Um, or daydreaming. And that's where things actually start to get interesting. And um, even little fantasies start to arise. And sometimes you're just plain tired and you want to sleep. And, and on, on one particular morning, I think after I had been there for... 24 hours or so and I'm feeling the effects of the fast and the sun is coming up after uh, I think it was a full moon and if you've ever slept outside in a full moon it's very strange it's like um, the night is very unusual in a in a full moon and it's hard to even know if it's where like the night ends and the day begins and the day begins and the night ends. And I'm just laying there in the wash doing nothing. In fact, I'm somewhat bored, which happens like, um, and I think boredom is partly a necessary ingredient in being broken down. And who knows what I was doing? Just getting warm in the sun, probably just enjoying the feeling of uh, the rocks warming up. And I was kind of laying underneath this rock being and all of a sudden, kind of out of the blue, I felt a, like, like the rock itself was uh, revealing a bit of its essence. And what I felt in the moment as I looked up at this being who was facing up the canyon, was that it was claiming to be or revealing that it was the defender of the ancient ways. That was the phrase, the kind of poetic phrase that just like floated by my heart and mind for like a millisecond. And, and what I said... Well, it's kind of it's kind of funny when I think about it. What I said out loud to the rock being, to the buffalo, was, "Oh, that's good for you." <laughs> that's what came out of my mouth, like defender of the ancient ways. And I'm like, like, hey, w well done, keep up the good work. 
was kind of the sentiment. And I just went back to laying in the sun and as if nothing was happening, which is often what's, um, what the spiritual life is like. It's like nothing is happening and, and yet subtle, um, like the grass is slightly off or the wind moves over the water just barely. And, you know, sometime later, like maybe three seconds later, all of a sudden I felt this like jolt of energy and heartbreak really, because I felt suddenly like it was saying to me, you are called to do the same. And the feeling was a mixture of surprise, fear, and resistance. That's the way I would say it. Not like culmination, meaning, purpose, but resistance, surprise, and wonder were kind of like uh, being stirred up. And, and, um, and I really didn't think that something that powerful was actually happening to me. It was just almost like a passing sensation, but not one that evaporated immediately or was whisked away and with a kind of like spiritual amnesia. And I just forgot it. It actually, um, struck a chord that seemed to be deep in my own sensibilities. And it really wasn't until I started talking a bit about it with a couple friends from Animus and, you know, told my wife a, a bit about this experience when I got back home. When I started to feel kind of um, that this was the beginning of something, that something potentially was being revealed. And, and only now, maybe five or six years later, can I begin to say what that something is and what I think was at work. And, um, and, and so, and here's what I would say. Uh, first of all, a warning, which is, I don't personally believe that nature is like an oracle. And it goes around telling us stuff. I mean, to me, on the surface, that strikes me as like somewhat narcissistic. I'm going to go out, go out and fast, and then some rock is going to tell me my meaning of my life. And I think, no, um, the world is just being itself. It's like Thomas Merton says that the the tree gives glory to God by being unalterably itself, and it's like that. The the world and the canyon and this buffalo-shaped being is giving glory to God or is um, be, by just by being itself, whether I'm in the canyon or not. Yet, something um, subtle and a bit hard to describe can sometimes happen when we avail ourselves to the world when the world is just being itself. And it's in it, to me, it feels something like this. The, there's something like a tuning fork that runs right through the center of my chest and my being, my core. And the other end of that tuning fork is in the world in some way. And every once in a while, we find ourselves in places. I think, um, place, geography, earth, reality can't be separated out from the experience that I'm describing. But there's something about the place itself that hums or um, begins to stir the opposite end of the tuning fork. Maybe there's even a kind of conversation that's happening between this rock being and, my, and the shape of my own soul or my own essence. Or maybe my own essence begins to hum and ring in a way that's, that's like the place itself. And sort of in the sense that like attracts like. 
you could say, you could, you know, say in a, and I don't even mean this critically, that part of what's happening is I'm projecting, you know, I'm projecting onto this rock that first of all, it's a buffalo, even though if I were to take you there, you'd say, yeah, sure enough, looks like one. Um, but it's still a kind of human projection, we could say. And, and you could even say this, this notion of defender of the ancient ways is a kind of projection. And, and I, it's not that I would disagree. I would say, yeah, it is something like that. But it doesn't mean just because I'm projecting, there isn't some resonance that's true here beneath the surface. And, and I think this is what can happen to us when we allow ourselves to be shaped by the world. This is why I think Jesus spent 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness until he was, had gone through his temptations, exposing what his own heart was like. But also, it says, um, he was in relationship with the Spirit. So, um, I don't think you can separate out that experience from being in the wild world like that. And I mean, I could exaggerate, and I don't even think it's an exaggeration, but without that kind of fast in the wilderness, there would be no Christianity. That's the way I view Jesus' 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. There'd be no kingdom of God, disciples of Jesus. You, know, you could say, well, it would manifest in another way, okay, in a, in a cosmic sense, but in a practical sense, the fast revealed something about the way Jesus was oriented and was related to the world. And there was something about the, the wilderness itself um, and the shape of his, his own soul that was like a tuning fork. That's my guess. So I think it's, you know, it's almost important to say, I don't want to treat nature as an oracle, but, um, but I do want to soften my defenses in such a way as a kind of living conversation might take place or um, nature might mirror back to me something I wouldn't otherwise recognize. And when that happens, at least in my experience, as it's happened a few times, it comes to, comes to us as a surprise and sometimes even a little resistance. I didn't like the phrase defender of the ancient ways. There's no way in hell I'd get that as a tattoo, you know? ancient ways, you know, come on, let's just move on. Let's progress. Let's, let's shed the past. Let's tear it down, but defend it. I don't even like the word defense. And it's that kind of resistance that I think is a kind of clue that there's possibly something more going on. And if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you, you could ask yourself this question. If defender of the ancient ways is a, is a poetic hint at Kent's way of relating to the world. Let's just call it that, a poetic hint, a poetic hint about the shape of, of his soul. And, and, and I mean it as a barely understood hint, then we would expect to recognize such a thing. And you could ask yourself, on this podcast, am I occasionally defending the ancient ways? And I think that without even trying, that's in part what I've been up to. And like, why is it that I can't give up on the old stories and frames? Why is it that when someone tells me something, like describes a kind of problem at work or relationship, often I think of an ancient myth or what is it about the old poems or the bards and misfits of the past that still call my name in some way? In some ways, I'm even, without even trying, arguing for a religious life. You know, people say I'm spiritual but not religious, and I think I'm more religious but not often not very spiritual, or <laughs> doesn't appear that I am. But what I mean by religion is not adherence to some doctrinal um, uh, system, but a way of orienting our lives toward ultimate meaning, to rebind is what the word means, as you probably know, or remember. Just as we, we tend to get dismembered by life and to remember, to be put back together, that's, that's a, a religious way of orienting to which we all have an instinct for, at least in my view. And 
or the ancient way of even caring about the soul in the first place or soul tending or, or tending the soul. Um, I'm not the first to talk about this. This is what our ancestors um, and the ancient ways have preserved. Often, uh, dis- despite uh, mainstream culture or mainstream religion or socio-political power, but there's an undercurrent of misfits and bards and mystics and prophets and seers and um, poets and artists and cave painters and elders and grandmas and grandpas and farmers who are just singing the song of the sacred anyway. And in some ways, I'm just trying to join that choir. And yeah, so there was something about this defender of the ancient ways that was like a tuning fork for me and revealed a dimension. I wouldn't call it revealed my soul because I still think about the soul ultimately as a mystery. But to use my kind of working definition at the moment, which is a way of being in relationship that, yeah, something was revealing itself. Like here's a way in which you are related to the world, to people, to human beings, to the natural world. And it's like, it's a little like facing, for me, the opposite direction. Just like that buffalo being was facing up the canyon, you know. I often feel like I'm facing the past, which seems like backwards in some way. Unadvisable. So I'm just trying to reveal kind of in a, a simple way a little of this moment and how it relates to the question of, of, of soul, soul as relationship. And so partly what I've been doing consciously and unconsciously, but now in the last few years, in some ways more consciously or directly, is letting this possibility reshape my life, to challenge my life and to question me in a way and Because there was something about, like, if I bring that image to mind, there's something about that image that I find deeply challenging, like it's staring me down, not necessarily building me up and, like, affirming me, but um, calling me to something ancient and old and not even that personal. Yeah, and... um, Let me just return to Jung's line. People will do anything, no matter how absurd, in order to avoid facing their own souls. We'll we'll take a grab bag approach to spiritual practices and gurus and not want to sit alone in solitude, trusting that the shape of the world and the shape of our own soul might be singing harmony, you know. Who's got time for that, you know? Ain't nobody got time for that. You know, just tell me what to do. Give me the seven steps. And I don't think you can really descend, even if it, maybe it's not so much of a choice, but I'll just use the, the ancient image of descend. I don't think you can descend into that kind of terrain without a willingness and without some courage to walk toward the solitude of your own existence. No more inputs, no more teachers, no more books. Just this is what's going on for me and a kind of softening to the world itself. And and I think the soul's path is the great the greatest path of meaning just both both personally personal meaning but also reveals something of of the way we're supposed to be in community you could say the way we're supposed to relate to the world it's it, it starts to make sense of our of where to place our gifts that we did not invent or create but are given maybe our, our way of being in relationship with the world is the same thing as describing our gifts. 
And I think many people walk around without ever knowing really what they are, even if they've taken aptitude tests and they know their Enneagram and they've, you know, taken the big five personality test and they know their Myers-Briggs and, you know, they went and saw a shaman who, who gave them a, a crystal that describes their heart, you know, even though they drew a tarot card. They have yet to sit in the emptiness, in the self-emptying, in the unknowing, in the cloud of unknowing, and await. I guess that's what faith is in a way. And um, I don't know. I, I was just thinking about about Jake. Well, first thing I thought of was um, this notion that Carl Jung offered the world, which is the first half of life and the second half of life. I first heard that from uh, Richard Rohr. I didn't realize he got it from Jung until I started reading um, Jung seriously for the last, you know, five or six years. And um, and, and and anyway, that's that's a symbol. That's an image. I mean, it's not like there's it's math. Um, you know, Jung says uh, life begins at forty. Everything up until that time is just research and. <laughs> which I, that makes me laugh. And, and also the, the rabbis say you shouldn't study the Kabbalah until age 40. It's like the first half of life matters and, and struggling for social identity and role and um, job and family and whether or not you're, you know, want uh, a partner in life or, or a family and um, building a name for yourself and working on your resume and um, all vitally important. And then we get to a certain threshold, a certain Rubicon that offers us the possibility of entering, of entering the underworld of the second half of life. And okay, what's behind all that? And what's the story that really wants to live through us? And, and, what if all the things that I've been striving for and achieving um, don't seem to amount to anything real or or authentic or is sourced in something deeper and that hunger and that awakening, that hunger for awakening or that hunger for contact with source, with a deeper source, not only for God, which I think would be one way of putting it or my way of putting it, but also for one's own unique shape, their own ultimate way of being in relationship with the world. In other words, the soul, that, that begins to, to take over as the dominant hunger. And we can ignore that, and many people do. That's what Jung is saying. And he actually says it in a funny way. You can ignore it by being spiritual and practice yoga and stuff. Um, but we can ignore it in five billion other ways. And um, So I was thinking about the story of Jacob and you know, Jacob is, I think, the the story of his life is probably the best example of these two halves, really, or of the first half of life defining him in a certain way and leaving him ultimately very restless. So if you know the story, uh, Jacob and um, it's really the story of Jacob and Esau. Jacob is uh, was uh, a twin and Esau is the older brother. And, um, and when Jacob comes out of the womb, uh, the story tells us that he's grabbing the heel of his brother. And so he's called then Yaakov, which means heel grabber. And it's, it seems to be a kind of like a cultural way of pointing toward deception or grabbing for something or trying to be first, you could even say. And so his, his parents, which I think is funny, name him heel grabber. And, and sure enough, he very much lives into that identity. First of all, as the second born, he's much more like a mama's boy. He stays at home. He, he actually conspires with his mother. It says he's a tent dweller. He, he conspires with his mother to deceive his father. That act of, again, grabbing, deception, taking. Whereas Esau is, is a wild ass of a man who's hairy and loves to hunt and he's probably got father wounds and um, spends long periods of time away from 
the tent, we could say. And there's a kind of rivalry, and it, it's it's somewhat revealing of the human psyche and the male psyche at that. These two sides, and um, but that's probably another story. And uh, so, what Jacob ends up doing, if you know the story, is that his father has weak eyes. Is how it reads in Hebrew, and and he dresses up as his brother, um, and deceives his father into getting the blessing, his father's blessing, and in turn, the birthright. He steals that also from his brother, takes advantage of him. And so in a sense, he becomes the firstborn. And this was a very important kind of like identity marker in the ancient world and also was very practical. It's like, um, you know, if you had 10 kids and you divided up, you know, all of your resources or possessions or, um, you know, among those kids, you'd have nothing left in a generation or so. So most of the time, it was common for it to go to the firstborn. And in a sense, that person, we come, become the matriarch or the patriarch of the family. And, and for one reason or another, Jacob was willing to deceive his way into this and, and to get the father's blessing. And, and from a psychological point of view, anyone who's kind of that desperate for blessing I think in a very obvious way, struggles with a kind of internal sense of worthiness. That's what I hear in there. Like, I'm not worthy unless you bless me, or I'm not worthy unless I get this, or I'm not worthy unless I'm seen in this certain way. Or, and it kind of drives him crazy. And so he, he steals the birthright um, and the blessing and has to flee, flee for his life. And and he does, and he goes and makes makes a life somewhere else. He ends up marrying. Actually, he gets deceived, and um, his father-in-law swaps out his girlfriend for his girlfriend's sister on the wedding night, who it says has, quote, weak eyes. So this is kind of like bitter irony. Um, uh, it's karma. Uh, karma is my boyfriend. Karma is a god, just to quote the saint and mystic uh, Taylor Swift, who I'm, I really actually totally love. Um, anyway, this karmic sort of turn of events, and he ends up marrying the sister of his girlfriend. He eventually marries her as well, but um, who has weak eyes, and, and so he gets deceived. But still, it's like he's still not satisfied, and eventually he gets wind um, of the impending death of his father and he has to go back home. And isn't that how it always is? It's like we can move to the Bay Area and it's like, and yet home still haunts us. We can move to Jerusalem for God's sake and um, live in Abu Tor and have an apartment and, you know, try to learn a foreign language and have friends and relationships on the other side of the planet. And, Yet home is still central and the father figure is, it's, it's like we're still revolving around the, around the sun, you know, S-U-N. Yeah, so anyway, um, Jacob has to go back home and, and the story tells us he comes to a river and he sends all of his possessions over and, and until he's empty. And this is that kenosis. This is the self-emptying. Who are you really? If you send everything across the river, all your clothes, and you're just naked at night on the shore of a river, who the hell are you? You know, that's that kind of confrontation. Existential, personal, real, ordinary confrontation. Um, and he's standing there alone, and it says that he wrestles all night with a man. You know, most people say angel, and that, that's really an interpretation that comes from a, a prophetic book later on. But in the story, it just says uh, he wrestles with a man all night. And who's he wrestling with? I don't know. Himself? God? A man? An angel? His own demon? Demons? His soul? He's certainly wrestling with who am I? There's no question about that. He's wrestling with what I would call soul. 
What is his way of relating to the world? What is ultimately his way of relating to the world? Is it just through deception and grabbing and stealing and winning and being first? Is that going to define him? Or is there some deeper thread, some seed of possibility, like James Hillman says, of, of the soul? The soul is like an acorn. And, and, and when watered and cared for and put in the soil, grows up into a certain shape and it's like that hasn't yet even happened for Jacob. He's still, it's like he, he put his acorn on the shelf, you could say. And um, yeah, so here he is um, wrestling and he says something very interesting. He says, I won't let you go, he says to the man, until you bless me. And see, there it is. Even after all these years and all this striving and all this clinging and all this grasping and all this desperate quest for love, meaning, affection, purpose, and he still feels empty. And the angel, man, God says, your name is Israel. It's a renaming. It's a remembering, really. It's a call back to his own essence, his own way of being in relationship with the world and with God and with his family and with life itself. And it's revealing. It's like something of his own soul, the tuning fork, was humming and resonating with the shore of this river at night. And he recovered or discovered something of his own essence, something of his own soul, which is at the heart, is, is deeply worthy in this sense. It's deeply worthy to wrestle with God. That's, where, that's the core of the wrestling match, which he confused for wrestling for a birthright or a blessing from his earthly father or a wrestling match with his brother or a wrestling match with his wives and his father-in-law. Beneath that was a, was a deeper kind of struggle with the divine. And that is closer to his essence. That's closer to his way of being in relationship with the world. And, and as a reminder, this man then wounds him in the hip. In case you think you can go around and do whatever you want and walk wherever you want and live your life as if you're the captain of your own fate and the master of your own soul, this is going to hurt. And every day you're going to get up and remember the core, that, that at your core, at the level of the soul, at the level of calling even, this limp is going to remind you that you're to wrestle with the divine. And the rest of his life he walks with a limp. I mean, that is a profound... First of all, it's a profound story, um, but I think it's revealing a profound possibility. Maybe we could even say there might be a little clue in here that anything, any subtle hint that reveals just a dimension of your way of relating to the world is going to hurt a little bit because it's going to reveal that the places where you're most sensitive, like maybe Jacob was most sensitive to to the divine, it's going to cause him some trouble. It's going to hurt a little bit. I mean, after all, sensitivities and wounds, what's the difference? We're wounded in areas that we're most sensitive. And same goes with me. It's like, I barely want to tell you about this defender of the ancient ways because it sounds like I'm some sort of like old school fundamentalist and I care about the past. And um, it's like, I don't know, this the sensitivity there is also also exposes a place where I might get hurt and be misunderstood. And so you got to walk with a limp. So, hmm. How do I want to kind of end this little riff? Uh, maybe in two ways. I would like to say, like to suggest, as clearly as I can, that if you're listening to this, you have a soul. And you have and that soul is shaped in a certain way. And um it's 
among the most beautiful, noble, and somewhat dangerous tasks in life to get closer to discovering your way of being in relationship with, with the world. And when you do that, no job, no role, no career, no gender, no identity, no Enneagram number, no personality matrix um, can even come close to uh, naming that way of being in relationship, can come close to the experience of being in harmony with, with your own soul. It's worth the descent. It's worth the wrestling match. It's worth the shedding. It's worth the self-emptying. It's worth the confusion. It's worth entering the cloud of unknowing. And maybe one more piece from Merton in case you think these worlds are totally separate. Because sometimes I think, um, I actually learned this in Animus, and um, sometimes there's a, a sense where there's a separation out of, of descent, or uh, excuse me, of soul and spirit. You know, spirit is often, you know, in mythic terms, upper world oriented and is about unity and wholeness and totality and the cosmic dimension of of being and or the abyss or nothingness or light. And, you know, the imagery, the ancient imagery for that is ascension. Jesus went up on a mountain and was enveloped and ascended. And, um, but the opposite of that is about descent and entering the mountain, the underworld, um, going into the earth, going down, being snatched, being taken like Persephone. And that has more to do with uniqueness and introversion and a kind of individuality, but I'm, I just use air quotes because I don't really mean it in the contemporary sense of it, but, um, and is about darkness rather than light. And, and so, you know, descent to soul and ascent to spirit is, is one frame, but ultimately w those two worlds seem to meet and touch. They touch at the center and they touch at the extremes. It's like Thomas Merton says, when we, when we, um, when we find the true self, we will find God. And if we find God, we will find the true self. So there is a, this is not navel gazing. This isn't building your own personal brand down in there. You know, it's about touching the, the very moment we touch the, the sacred mystery of our own center, it expands out into the cosmos. And the moment we, we bump into the cosmic union of just the way the world is or the divine then often we get a, a taste of where we fall in that in our uniqueness our sense of soul our sense of being in relationship with the whole um here's a little line from rilke this is just part of the poem the man watching and this will be the end. First of all, he tells of a great storm coming and, and kind of riffing off the Jacob story, he says, what we choose to fight is so tiny. What fights with us is so great. If only we would let ourselves be dominated as things do by some immense storm, we would become strong too and not need names. Do you feel like even naming, even something like defender of the ancient ways is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire that no name, no name is needed. And when we allow ourselves to be dominated as things do by some immense storm and give up all of our tiny fights for, and all of our heel grabbing. When we win, it's with small things. I used to think about this line when I still think about this line. Whenever politics is looks like and is actually a, a massive um, like uh, football game, like who has more points? You know, who's who's winning here? When we win, it's with small things, and the triumph itself makes us small. 
What is extraordinary and eternal does not want to be bent by us. You cannot bend it. Even the, the kind of subtle, kind of mysterious experience I had in that canyon in Utah can't be bent by me or shoved into my pocket to be used for some egoic purpose. It will go sideways and turn sour. What is extraordinary internal does not want to be bent by us. I mean the angel who appeared to the wrestlers in the Old Testament. When the wrestlers' sinews grew long like metal strings, he felt them under his fingers like chords of deep music. This is the world. This is the mystery. This is a rock being plucking the chords of the soul where music is played. And there's a back and forth here. Whoever was beaten by this angel, who often simply declined the fight, went away proud and strengthened and great from that harsh hand that needed him, like kneading, like dough, like needed him as if to change his shape. Winning does not tempt that man. This is how he grows by being defeated decisively by ever greater beings. That's my hope, that's my prayer for my own life and for yours, that you'll be defeated lovingly and beautifully by constantly greater beings.